This week's episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Loot Crate. No matter what you geek out about, Loot Crate has a monthly subscription box for you. Exclusive collectibles, apparel, and gear delivered directly to your door. And uh, they have lots of great crates for stuff like Fallout, Minecraft, Harry Potter, WWE, Marvel, Stranger Things. And uh, actually, I got to make one of my own. I partnered with the creative director of Loot Crate to make a Me, You, and Dupree box, the uh, 2006 movie with uh, Kate Hudson, Matt Dillon, and uh, Dupree. In it, you can find the same lay that Kate Hudson and Matt Dillon wore on their wedding day, the blueprints, the famous blueprints from Matt Dillon's architecture firm, and, of course, uh, a glass dildo model after Dupree's dick. So, yeah, please get it. They were pretty nervous about that last item, the uh, glass dildo. So I had to pay for them to manufacture them. So right now I'm operating at kind of a big loss, but, you know, you got to spend money to make money. And, uh, you know, I spent $30,000 uh on those glass dildos so sign up for loot crate and i hope you do you know and if you're like a big wwe fan maybe you know get that one and also get you know you mean dupree uh because you know kind of in a big hole so sign up for loot crate go to boardlocker.com slash loot crate and save 10 percent by using the code save 10 at checkout that's boardlocker.com slash loot crate Boardwalk Audio Podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash writing. Click the Support Our Artist button and shop on Amazon and Norwood. We get a little kickback. This week's guest is Caitlin Kunkel. She's a really funny writer and teacher of comedy and runs this great comedy writing website, The Belladonna. If you haven't heard about it, if you're a woman or an other marginalized gender, you can and you should, in my opinion, submit to them. Uh, as we say later in the episode, Caitlin and the other editors actually give feedback to every submission, whether they take it or not, which is uh, completely unheard of. So take advantage of that. Uh, so yes, check out the Belladonna, and if you write something for them, let me know, and I'll retweet it from the Young Comedy Writing account to give you uh, <laughs> to give those you an extra three hundred forty eyeballs, or whatever the uh, followers are. Uh, but yeah, I'll retweet it. Yeah, uh, and check out the book Caitlin and her editors wrote called New Erotica Feminist when it comes out in November of this year. So here is Caitlin Kunkel. <laughs> Caitlin, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, where are you from originally? I am originally from Rhode Island. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's like, um, well, that's the state that you drive, you can drive through in like an hour, right? Yeah, about 45 minutes to an hour. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Usually people think I'm saying Long Island, but Rhode Island, the smallest state. People think you're saying you're Long Island? They don't yes. think it's the state, the one of the 50 states in the country? When I went to college, people were shocked. They like were like, wait, what? Like, that's a state? Wow, like, guys, you're in college. Yeah. <laughs> come on, that's crazy. Is it, so? There's like a there's like a good like art scene in Rhode Island. Am I wrong in saying that? Uh, well, <laughs> there's I like, there's like, like RISD. There's like RISD. <laughs> there's right? RISD. Yeah, there's, you're right. There's a very good visual art scene, mm-hmm. but for the type of stuff I do, there wasn't like mm-hmm. I don't think I ever saw any improv. I yeah. um, would go see theater at uh, Trinity Rep, which is like their great repertory theater there. But um, yeah, not the type of stuff I do now. <laughs> right, right. When did you first get interested in comedy? I I don't know. I wasn't one of those people who, like, watched SNL a lot growing up. I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of things. Um, I was only allowed to watch, like, Nickelodeon and Disney Channel for years. So oh, okay. I would say, I mean, now that I think about it, I watched I Love Lucy every night for years on end. Oh, wow. So that's probably it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the Dick Van Dyke show. So I watched, like, a lot of older stuff. And I think, like, I mean, Lucille Ball is my hero. Yeah. <laughs> so just, like, physical comedy and... Um, just like that great sitcom structure and how to make characters. So I think I learned it a lot from watching I Love Lucy, mm-hmm. looking back. <laughs> it's cool that that like, show still like holds up. I mean, I saw like, an episode fairly recently, and it's still like, it's just it's still pretty funny, and it still like, yeah. works, like, like it's narratively. Yeah, and then I started um, 
when I was last I got a little older in high school and was allowed to watch more stuff, my mom was like a huge Seinfeld fan. Okay. So I'd watch Seinfeld with my mom all the time. Yeah. So she was like, this show is what people are like in real life. <laughs> Which tells you that my mom is yeah. a little bit cynical. <laughs> you know, I was thinking the other day, like, Jerry... Uh, he he had so many like he dated so many women in that show for like one episode who were like either there to serve the plot or just like hello and bye and they were out yeah weird weird show when you think about it like that it is yeah there are a lot of like people who did cameos that you wouldn't expect um, yeah but yeah you're right it's I guess <laughs> that wasn't like a great model of relationships yeah. but well this was like yeah, Keith Hernandez did like a crazy cameo mm-hmm. where he was like dating Elaine right or something or... I think so and Deborah Messing was on it um, I've watched I mean I watch some of them now in repeats but yeah. I watched I watched most of them when they aired live oh um, cool cool which is cool. Yeah, I remember like leaving. I was a swimmer, and I remember leaving swim practice like early the night of the finale because my mom was like, oh. "It's a big night." <laughs> yeah, was that disappointing to you? The finale? Yes, it yeah. just it felt like the framework was like too strong. I didn't like the framework yeah. of the trial. I mean, I did laugh that they got imprisoned for like not being good Samaritans. I thought that was funny, but it just didn't. It felt almost like a clip show to have like everyone testify against them, as opposed mm. to like a satisfying finale. But right. That's just me. <laughs> it, it feels more like a Curb Your Enthusiasm thing too, like that. Thing. Yeah. 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 So no, I think compared to like <laughs> other episodes that I love, it was not as good. But yeah. I still think the series holds up really well. So. Uh... Did you do, like, any comedy stuff growing up? Like, any sort of, like, writing or, like, any, like, acting or anything? No. Yeah. I'm, like, pretty much a pure writer. Like, I know a lot of the people uh-huh. you've talked to, they do stand-up, they do other other stuff, but I've, um, I'm not an actor. I've never taken classes. Mm-hmm. I have done a little bit of improv, but I would not say I'm super good at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, mostly I was just, like, a huge reader. I read tons and tons of books. I mean, I would read, like, three or four books a week all oh, wow. growing up. Um, but not even necessarily comedy. Like I'm a huge Stephen King person. Mm-hmm. So I started reading Stephen King when I was really young. So I wasn't allowed to watch like most TV, but I was allowed to read whatever I wanted. So mm-hmm. I learned a lot by reading. <laughs> this is so random. But since you mentioned Stephen, Stephen King, I've been thinking about this recently because I saw it recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the original novel, it was like, wasn't there like a weird like orgy, kid orgy scene? Yeah, there's like a kid orgy slash gangbang. Why? why? <laughs> I don't know. Stephen King, like... I mean, I love him, and I think he's like a. He seems like a really nice man. I don't know him. I talk about him like I know him, but um, yeah, he has like a ton of like weird sexual stuff in a lot of his books. Yeah, I just read Gerald's Game. Do you know? Oh, that? I, I've seen the. I saw the movie. Yeah, I heard it was made into a movie, and then I was like, oh, this is what I missed, so I'm gonna read it. Yeah. Um, I thought that was uh, you know a good. I really enjoyed the book, but yeah, it's like there's like BDSM. She was. I mean, there's a molestation. I won't say, like, yeah. what happened. But, yeah, he very much, like, intertwines sex into his stories yeah. in a way that, yeah, I, I can definitely see if I was the screenwriter for it, I would be like, no, I can't have this gangbang <laughs> yeah. in here, this yeah. child gangbang. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite Stephen King novel? Uh, the Stand. Okay, yeah. Huge Stand fan. And then uh, second would be Misery. Okay, cool. Yeah, and then um, different seasons would be third. I know you didn't ask me to rank every single book, uh, but I don't know. I don't know different. Different seasons, seasons is a, a novella collection, so it's the uh, four stories. One is the story that became the Shawshank Redemption. One is a story called The Body, which became Stand by Me. Um, one is called Apt Pupil, which is about someone realizing their neighbor is a Nazi. That became a movie that's not mm-hmm. great, and then one of them hasn't been made into a movie. It's called The Winner's Tale, but mm-hmm. like. The idea that, like, two seminal movies came out of that collection right. is nuts to me. It's a great collection. What, what is it about Stephen King that's so, like, adaptable? I don't even... He's a super visual writer. Okay, um, yeah, that makes sense. So, like, even when he... So, Gerald's game is, like, she's chained to the bed the whole time, but you're inside her head. Um, and I know the movie, even though I haven't seen it yet, like, they create um, characters that kind of she talks to. But in the when, when you're reading it, you're flashing back to, like, other points in her life. So... I don't know, like when you read it, it's, and I, a lot of writers are like this, but especially him, I can see it in, in front of my eyes as I'm reading it. Um, like to me, Shawshank Redemption looks exactly like when I read the story, which mm. is crazy. Um, and I really like the movie adaptation, the Frank Darabont adapta- adaptation of The Mist. I thought that was another great novella, and I thought that looked like the way I thought it would look. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I would love to adapt a Stephen King yeah. <laughs> <laughs> novella into a movie. So were you from like a young age, like you wanted to be like a writer? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I didn't know like what kind of writer. I think I think most people kind of start out like, I want to be a serious novelist. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of my idea too. But I, I knew I wanted to be a writer. That I just spent so much time reading. It was like the one thing I love more than anything in the world. So mm-hmm. it makes sense. <laughs> when, you, when you went to college, is that what you were planning on doing? 
Yeah, I went to Johns Hopkins in um, Baltimore, mm-hmm. and I studied writing seminars, which is a major they have there. I actually don't think any other colleges have it. It's um, So you basically study different forms of writing, like journalism and essay writing and fiction writing and nonfiction. Oh. And then you also study like history, philosophy, languages, um, uh, like I took like a bioethics course, and the idea is that like in order to write, you have to be informed in all these other elements, and you can't write unless you have things to pull from. Oh wow, that's actually Which, yeah. pretty good. I think that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Me too, because like even in my first couple seminars, we were all just like writing about like going to parties, yeah. and the teachers were like, "You guys need to read and have more experiences." <laughs> I remember asking one of the teachers once, I was like, "Should I go to grad school?" And he honestly told the whole class, he was like, no, go live abroad. He's like, go do something else. He's like, <laughs> your writing will be best if you have experiences to write right. from, which obviously is true. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Did you, I, I'm in grad school currently at mm-hmm. NYU and I, I wonder, uh, I, I like it a lot, but I do wonder if it's like worth it. I know? went to, I did go to grad school. Oh, you eventually. did? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I did in a heat. I went abroad for a year after college and then I went to grad school. <laughs> oh, interesting. So did you, you went to grad school for like a writing thing? Yeah. I got an MFA from Northwestern. Um, mm-hmm. and at the time I went, I was only the second class. It was new. It was called an MFA in writing for the screen and stage. So we studied oh. like playwriting, TV writing, film writing, and then production courses. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of why I went there because I got into a couple MFA programs for fiction too. But I was like, at the end of this, I just have a book. If I can't sell the book, then w- what happens? Right. Um, so at Northwestern, I like learned how to teach. I learned how to create a curriculum. I learned production skills. So it just <laughs> felt like I was getting more <laughs> things I could yeah. make money with. <laughs> well, that sounds better than what I'm doing. I mean, I'm doing, it's the same thing actually. It's like, uh, dramatic writing so it's playwriting yeah. uh tv writing and screenwriting but that's like it we're not doing like we're not learning production stuff we have a production credit which <laughs> i used to do writing sketch which you were supposed to do a show which we didn't do so then yeah. that counts as a production credit <laughs> um but it's interesting you, like, how do you learn like teaching stuff through, in that so we taught so um northwestern has like a really great undergraduate writing program mm-hmm. as well that's uh, also writing for tv and film which I can't imagine being able to study that as an undergrad. Yeah, that right. would have been great. Um, like, my college didn't even have a theater program. You uh, couldn't yeah. even get a theater degree. So um, you teach the undergrad introductory courses, so intro to screenwriting. So you teach people how to, like, come up with stories and write a 10-page screenplay. But they're, like, pretty rigorous. And before they, like, unleash you on these students who are paying 50 grand a year, like, mm-hmm. we, have to, we had to submit our syllabi, like, for, like, five rounds of review. You had uh. to... You couldn't just like wing it. Like the whole semester, we had to put down every single assignment, every single lecture topic, show some notes. Um, so to this day, I think it was like amazing training because a lot of people I can think segue into teaching later in their careers, but they don't have any like curriculum training. Mm. They don't know how to like craft a class. Um, so at the time, I was like 24, and I was like, oh, this is so irritating. <laughs> but now I'm like, of course you should plan the whole class right. before you start week one. <laughs> well, especially like in the comedy world, there's like so many different classes out there. Yeah. And so it's, it's also weird, like at UCB, it's like, you know, it's a great institution in terms of classes and stuff, but it's just weird that like they have like these guys, these actors, and they're like, okay, now you're going to become a teacher. Yeah. And you have like have to be, like, have to create like a syllabus. You don't have to create a syllabus, but you have to follow the syllabus and like execute it as a teacher. Yeah. I'm. I've taken all the improv classes and all the sketch classes at UCB, yeah. and I've had some teachers who were truly excellent, and then I've had some teachers who were terrible. Right. So, Because I do think like teaching is a huge skill in and of itself, and just because you're good at improv doesn't mean you can teach other people improv. Right. <laughs> um, also, I was saying I went abroad for a year before grad school, and I actually taught English abroad in Indonesia. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, on something called a Fulbright English teaching assistantship. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, so there's like Fulbright scholars who are like really smart people who are doing research. And then there's like Fulbright English teachers who you just have to know English. <laughs> and you have to be willing to go to a country where like most people like wouldn't necessarily want to go. So Right. <laughs> well, Indonesia is kind of a cool country though. It I was think. good, but I applied like six months after the tsunami. So oh, they had very low apps that I year. See. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was that experience like? I really enjoyed, again, like, I had taught a little toward the end of my college um, experience at, like, a Baltimore school, Mm -hmm. um, which was good, 
And then I went abroad and like, so I taught, I had 10 classes of 45 students each I saw a week. So I taught 450 students at a Muslim public high school every week. Wow. So that was like, I feel like where I learned to teach. Oh, and and there are high school students too. High school, they were like 16. That's kind of crazy too. They're much more polite than American high school students. Oh, interesting. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, they acted more like what I would consider like a 12 year old might act like. They were like respectful and like, they were kind of like nervous of the teacher in some Mm. ways. Um so that was like nuts like we went to jakarta and then we got like six weeks of teaching training plus indonesian language learning wow and then they basically shipped us off to like our own cities and i went to east java and lived in a house and worked in this high school wow yeah it was crazy (laughs) (laughs) so so then after that you went to grad school yeah would you recommend grad school to people it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, Northwestern especially is extremely expensive. Like mm-hmm. I'm still paying off my student loans and I people in my program will probably never pay them off. Like it's offensively expensive. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think if you, I don't know, I, I think you really have to look at the finances. I, I will say I loved it. It was two years of like that's, I was, I was pretty young. I was 23 and 24. So A, I would say wait till you're a little older, <laughs> yeah. um, especially for writing stuff. But Um, there were people who came in who had saved money, so they were able to, you know, not take as many loans and people who like, they just knew exactly what they wanted to get out of it. Whereas I was still like really learning. So I wasn't as like laser focused as other people, but, um, I mean, I, I loved it and I do think it led to a lot of opportunities for me, but I'm hesitant to tell people to take on $80,000 in debt. Yeah. (laughs) So it is, you know. I don't know. It seems like we're headed to like where that's going to become very like it's already un un not manageable now, but I think we're headed to like a place where that's going to be like impossible soon, right? Yes, it feels like we we are, right? I don't know. Yeah, like when I um, I mean I'm I'm down now. I'm probably I'm going to pay it off this year, but Mm -hmm. a huge part of that is because I got married, and so being Mm -hmm. in a double income household makes it so much easier than to like be on your own and trying to make these huge payments and when we got married the minimum payment every month was a thousand dollars and 500 went to interest so oh wow not great yeah geez that's crazy (laughs) yeah and it affected um like a lot of my life decisions like where i would live and stuff so it's Mm -hmm. not something to go into lightly i would say but i do think if you can look at grad school and you know exactly what you'll get out of it then there is a benefit to it and i do think networking wise there is a benefit to Mm -hmm. it so in grad school, were you writing comedy stuff? No. Oh, really? <laughs> this is like, it took me so long to like, <laughs> I feel like I went from like reading a lot and then I like went to like novel, like I, went, I was like, oh, I want to be a novelist. And then in grad school, I was like, oh, I want to be like a serious playwright slash filmmaker. <laughs> and then, so I wrote like really serious stuff. And then like six months after I finished grad school in 2009, I went to Second City and saw uh, a satirical review and I was like oh this is it like this has been it the whole time I just didn't know uh-huh. um and at that time I was 25 so I'd say at 25 I like found my kind of writing uh-huh. what made you what drew you to like Second City excuse me what, what drew you to Second City um some of the people in my program had performed for them um and like obviously I went to I was in Chicago so it just was this huge institution and I don't know. I didn't know. I don't think I understood what a sketch comedy review was at mm-hmm. that point in time. And it's very different from what UCB does sketch wise. Um, so at Second City, the reviews are all built out of improv, but they're scripted every night. Right, yeah. So you're seeing the same show, but there might be like small tweaks, whereas like um, like sketch at UCB style is like written as sketch. It's not built out of improv mm-hmm. a lot of the time, although mm-hmm. some of the um, spanks might be out of mm-hmm. improv. Um, but yeah, I saw it and was like, oh, like instead of, like, being so serious and, like, coming at people, like, right from the front, you can kind of, like, slap them in the side of the head and be like, yeah. here's what I'm saying. <laughs> there was, like, a very famous, like, Obama one, right? Right around that right, right around that time? Yes. Right? Yeah, there were. So I'm trying to... They all have pun titles, which mm-hmm. I love. So there was one called Between Barack and a Hard Place. Mm-hmm. Um, it might have been that one. <laughs> but, yeah, they... I was seeing those, the... Um, at that time, they, I didn't see this review, but um, my husband did. They did a review. I don't know if you remember when um, Rod Blagojevich uh, was trying oh, to yeah. sell Obama's sentence yeah, yeah. Um They did a show called Rod Blagojevich, uh, I can't say his last name, Superstar. So it was like a Jesus Christ okay, Superstar yeah. parody. <laughs> and it was so popular that then it like moved to Navy Pier and like ran for a year of wow. solo performances. Wow. So, yeah, Second City is so good at, like, knowing, like, what people want to see. Mm. So, like, I've seen, like, a long sketch about, like, union workers' rights there where people are just, like, screaming and clapping and 
like big things about like how Chicago is a racist divided city and I'm um, talking about it through like the Cubs and the White Sox. So <laughs> it just was like such a cool medium having never seen like satirical comedy really to be like, mm-hmm. oh, like they talk about serious things, but they do it through like these comedic premises. Mm-hmm. So did you start taking classes at Second City? Yeah. At the end of grad school, we all got like a $5,000 production grant where, similar to what you said, you were supposed to produce something. Oh, yeah. But I instead took, (laughs) I took a sketch class. Oh, perfect. But I paid for the whole year up front. So um, the Second City sketch program, like UCB is like three classes and you do a a show one time. Um, I would argue Second City is better because you do um, six, you do six two-month classes. So it's a year. But then the final, the first four writing, five is like pre-production, like getting ready to do a show, and six is um, production, and you produce a show for a month. Okay. So it runs four times, and you're involved from like casting to like all the, um, you have a director, but you learn like how to direct sketch and how to produce the show. You're responsible for selling it, the tickets and everything. So again, I feel like I learned like that built on my grad school education and like taught me how to self-produce, which is something I did a lot in the years following that, Mm. so... And is everyone, like, in those classes, they, they're all the same people in the same classes? Ideally, by the time you yeah. get through three, they try to keep you as a group. Mm. So That's you know each other. Yeah. Yeah. So you did a show for, like, a, for a month there? Mm-hmm. How did how'd it go? <laughs> it went really well. Yeah. So they have, um, so there's the two main stages, and then they have a stage called Up, which is mainly stand-up. Um, but then they have two, like, student stages, but they're, like, beautiful stages. Mm-hmm. They have, like, 80 seats. They're professional lighting and sound systems. Um so, and you get a good slot. Like, I think our slot was, like, Fridays at 8 p.m. So we could, we sold it out every time, and you just have this really great positive experience, like, seeing... And with four crowds, it's, like, one week, a sketch might kill. The next week, it bombs. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of really get a chance to sit down and be like, what was different between those two audiences? Can I make it clearer? Like, did they laugh in the middle of the joke, and then they missed the final button? So it was, like, I really do feel like I went to grad school and sketch for that year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you'd later start uh, this online satire program. Yeah, I so after I, because I, and again, this goes back to like the way grad school was good, mm-hmm. because I had this experience teaching at Northwestern, I contacted Second City and I was like, hey, I just went through your sketch program. I loved it. Um, I had this experience teaching. Could I want to teach in the sketch program? I just sent like a cold email. Wow. <laughs> and they were like, great, um, send us your resume and we can talk. So I taught only one term of... Um, sketch one and then i wrote a class for them called story for tv and film um which i still teach online to this day and i wrote it seven years ago so it's um the idea that like people know sketch but like how do you expand that to longer forms Mm. so we talk about like how to use like a fairy tale as like a building block to do like a modern day adaptation of it i see and then like how to create characters that can drive like an entire film um same with tv pilots so it's like designed to get people going from short form like sketch to like longer forms Mm -hmm. like pilots and um Films. How do you think, like, sketch, uh, what, what tools of sketch do you think transit, uh, translate to that? Um, I think because Second City is also very character-based, mm-hmm. so oh, we, yeah. you always start with a character. So I think you can um, come up with characters who could potentially, like, serve as the engine for a whole movie. Um, so, like, one of the movie we talk about, like, uh, Mean Girls specifically because, you know, there's a famous story, Tina Fey is a Second City alum, where she bought the book Queen Bees and Wannabes. Um, which is just a sociological book about right. how girls treat each other. And then she created the character of Katie and then she built the story around the world. Um, but she just was like, I had to read a screenwriting book and like <laughs> figure it out. Nah, yeah. um, so we start, you start with characters and then we learn like um, screenplay structure and how, you know, the low point at the end of act two and the climax and the inciting incident. Um, but it's all driven by the character's choices as opposed to the plot. Um, right. Because I think sometimes sketch can be kind of plot heavy, but you can't do that for a hundred minutes. Right. I mean, you can, but then you've made, you know, Fast and the Furious, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's interesting though, because like, well, because sketch, I guess the way UCB teaches sketch is like the game, mm-hmm. game of the scene. Yeah. Which is uh, a, a, totally antithetical to plot. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting to think that you say like you teach or you think about it as like without plot and just character driving it. Which makes sense. Yeah, and I did like, I have to say, like, when that, so it was hard for me to write sketch in the UCB classes at first because game was so different. Mm -hmm. And also the idea that, like, it had to be four pages and, like, by the middle of page one, you were already, like, at the first game move. But I think it was actually great for me because it's so disciplined. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love the idea of, like, just, and at that point I had taken improv through them too, so I understood the concept of game. Um, I think the two, 
yeah, like you need a strong character, but you also need a strong game. Right. Because um, you would definitely see some sketches at Second City that were like eight pages long and like nothing was happening. <laughs> yeah, and pe- people always argue about like, I mean, very lame people always argue about like improv, <laughs> what improv school is best, when it's like the answer is like it's some of that, some of that, it's all together. Yeah. And it depends, like, if you're, I mean, I'm not an actor, so to me, I am I do do well in Heralds because I find Heralds, like, a writerly form, right. like, especially Second Beat Initiations were, like, where I excelled. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're really good at character, then a Second City model might be where you excel. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, I do a little improv. I don't really like it because I don't really like <laughs> acting, too. Same. <laughs> but it does, UCB style does feel more like I'm just, like, pitching jokes and then yeah. kind of... Which is probably not good. It's probably why I'm not that good at improv is because I'm just like pitching jokes like very in my voice like this. But I feel like I, I like it's easier for me. Like there are some people, and I I did improv like hardcore for like a year. I would say mm-hmm. 2015 to 26 uh, no 2016 to 2017. Mm-hmm. I like went through the whole program. I was on like three indie teams. Like I was doing it. Um, but when you get to know the other people, there were people who were such good character actors on one of my indie teams that it's like, all you have to do is do the second beat initiation and then straight man, mm. you're awesome acting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't bother me to be in that role because it's like, yeah, I can see that you're like excellent mm-hmm. <laughs> at this, um, but you might struggle to like understand how to like transpose the game. So let me do that part for you and then like make it clear to you what your move should be and then let you mm. nail it. <laughs> So with, with the classes you teach at Second City, you teach mm-hmm. them all online. Yeah, at this point. So I lived in Chicago um, until 2012, and then I got married. Um, and because of our huge student loan debt, my husband and I had to move um, to a cheaper city. So at that time, Portland, Oregon was cheaper than Chicago. Okay, yeah. Now it is not. Oh, wow. <laughs> in the four years we were there, it became more expensive than Chicago. <laughs> wow. Um, so he worked at Intel because he's a physicist, and then um, I was able to go freelance and I worked for second city online and I was a college professor teaching satire. So, Oh, you taught, you taught it as a college class. Yeah, I taught, I started teaching at a school called Pacific Northwest college of arts mm-hmm. in Portland PNCA. And this is so random. They just like put up an ad on Craigslist for professors. <laughs> like my mom found it and was like, this might be a scam, but I went in and they were like, what do you want to teach? And I was like, modern comedy and satire. And they were like, word let's do it (laughs) so i that actually was amazing i built a whole class from scratch and it was a literature class so we like read what a cool um, university right just like yeah yeah (laughs) very chill yeah then i went on to teach like scripting and i taught a dystopian fiction class like literally anything i wanted to teach they were like yeah as long as it like meets the requirements of the literature classes like by all means wow it was awesome and the students were they were great because they were like very non-traditional like a lot of them were older um they were just like amazing visual artists, a lot of them. So you'd get like a sculptor who like wasn't necessarily a good writer, but they were very creative. So it was very interesting to work with them and like teach them different skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I started to teach a class called Modern Comedy and Satire. And then um, I had been teaching online for Second City, just the online story class. And I was like, you know what? Like there's so these pieces that are meant to be online for like McSweeney's and New Yorker, other sites. There's no reason they can't be workshopped in an online class because that's how they're read by editors. There's no like performance element to it. So I started to build that out. And I would say it took me like six months to build it. And um, I put Satire 1 online in September of 2015. And then a year later, I built Satire 2. Um, and then two years after that, I put up um, Satire 3, which is the culminating level. The first two are a month long. Uh, Satire 3 is two months. And then you actually graduate from Second City. So yeah. it's the only program online you can graduate from. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Because it's the only one that really doesn't require a performance mm, element right. <laughs> to make sure you nailed it. Yeah. What What makes good political satire to you? Um, to me, I mean, obviously you have to have a point of view. Mm-hmm. So something really clear that you're saying that the viewer or reader can pick out by the end. So it's not, you can't play like both sides of the fence right. with political satire. Um, and my favorite political satirist is Alexandra Petrie at the Washington Post. Do you know her? I uh, know, I think so. She writes a, every day of the week. Um, uh, she has a column called Compost, which is like the lighter okay. <laughs> side of the post. Um, but she responds to the day's news like pretty much every day. Wow. Um, so she does something which I think is great, which is like she uses a lot of different forms. So like this year during the healthcare debate, she did a, um, a GoFundMe for Tiny Tim. Okay. Um, so she was like, Obviously, her political point of view is, like, it's insane that our healthcare is so messed up, like, dying children have to, like, try to uh, crowdfund. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it had a ton of jokes in it because, like, people were posting on the wall. Like, Bob Cratchit was, like, being like, hey, if you're not going to yeah. give money, just don't comment. Yeah. Um, 
So I think you need like a strong point of view and then you need like a, especially for written stuff, a really strong form. Um, so instead of like mm. ways, um, something like a guide to blah, 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 or like a GoFundMe, um, like I wrote a piece on McSweeney's um, after the first time Melania didn't want to hold Trump's hand. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's now been other times <laughs> um, where I was like, why would someone, what would make someone like not hold their hand? Right. So the form I came up with was like, it was called like Section 8F of Donald and Melania Trump's prenup handholding. <laughs> and it was just like everything about like <laughs> the rules for handholding yeah. in their marriage. Um so to me, I'm like really form based. Like it's hard for me to sit down and be like, I'm going to write a Trump piece. Mm. I'm like, okay, well this happened, you know, this legal brief went out. Can I use the format of a legal brief to kind of talk mm. about it? And what's my point of view on this? That's like more specific than I don't like Trump. Right, right. If you haven't guessed is my <laughs> feeling. <laughs> do you think, I mean, how do you think political satire is done like with Trump? Um, I know people, you know, like when you first elected, people are like, you know, it writes itself, this, this Trump stuff, which is a very dumb way to think about it, I think. But Yeah, I think we've hopefully moved past like the first couple of phases. Like first it was like, you know, his hair is orange, his right. hands are small, um, which is just like kind of lazy joke writing in my opinion. Like everyone has heard that. Yeah. Um, and so I think we're past that. And now I think we're almost past, like, people writing in his voice a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think now people kind of critique, like, the things around him. Like, the fact that he has women be his mouthpieces a lot of the time. And then he'll be like, oh, if you don't like what they're saying, you're not a feminist. Mm-hmm. Like, that to me is, like, an interesting thing to critique. Like, how they he co-ops, like, the language of, like, the left and uses it against people. Um, so I would, like, write about that as opposed to, like, just trying to go after him. Mm-hmm. Um like, I liked The President Show. I thought that was, like, a really good portrayal because it was a character, but it wasn't too close. And um, Anthony Tamanek was just, I mean, great in his portrayal. Um, I don't like Alec Baldwin. That's yeah. Per, like, portrayal I mean, of him. He, he is, Alec Baldwin is very similar to Donald Trump. Yeah. He's, like, the liberal <laughs> Donald Trump. Yeah, and I just, like, he's just, like, it's, like, like more of a caricature than, like, a full-on right, yeah. portrayal. Um, like, yeah, to me, good political and caricature is like a tool of satire, but like, Mm. I think you need to have like a point of view, like an element you've exaggerated. He just exaggerates like his physical appearance and then like his voice. Like Mm. I I felt like on the president show, they had chosen other elements of him as a character. Yeah. The, the president show was, I think pretty good i guess it's done now and for, they're, they filmed some specials i think yeah. one of them is i don't know if they've all come out but i think like a lot of the showrunners went on to work on the break with michelle wolf so right yeah yeah <laughs> which is a great show i've seen i've only seen a couple episodes it's really good yeah i've only seen a few episodes too yeah i um i definitely like it i need to watch more mm-hmm. i think yeah. sundays i'm not always like oh time to power up the right, political sketch. right. <laughs> what's also weird just thinking like it's on netflix mm-hmm. which is supposed to be like this you know thing that's here forever and like these shows like it's probably not that much fun to watch like a daily show from like 10 years ago because it's like, yeah, I don't know. They're very disposable. It's kind of disposable, which kind of seems very negative, but I don't mean it that way. It's just like this is the like, con- like you wouldn't watch the news again, you know, I would say that I think the Colbert Report holds up. Yeah, I guess because it's more of better. like um, that's more of like the the times rather than like the thing that's happening that day. Yeah. And like some of the segments he would do, like even like a lot of the word segments like still mm-hmm. hold up. Um, yeah. And, like, uh, that segment, People Who Are Ruining America, uh, like, still valid. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I have, I when I was teaching that college course especially, I would use a lot of older Colbert stuff. But almost never you write older Daily Show mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, so you, you write a lot of prose comedy. Mm-hmm. What about that form do you like that, that you get that isn't in, like, live comedy? I can do it alone. Yeah. <laughs> by myself. I am an introvert and a loner, so... <laughs> Um, there's nothing I love more than like sitting in my home office working alone. (laughs) Um, also, I mean, obviously it's cheaper. You don't have to buy props. You don't have to buy rehearsal space. Um, I produced a lot of live sketch shows when I lived in Chicago and Portland. And it's like just the sheer amount of emails you have to send a schedule is, (laughs) I mean, you could spend that time literally writing three prose pieces. Um, so I do like sketch. I haven't done it for a couple of years now. Um, but to me, there's also something like really magical and like you see something happen and you like do some brainstorming exercises for a bit, and then you like, I, oh, I, I have the premise, and now I see how to execute it. And like, you can write it in forty five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've rarely had that happen with a sketch. Right. Um, and I just like, I, I love it. I mean, I read. I would say I read written satire and comedy like at least ten pieces a day. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, there's a weird trend now, though, that like people are just reading the headlines. Yeah, I which, think for the Onion and Reductress, yeah. that's really true, and I hate that. Um, especially the Onion, because to me, the Onion, it's like the headline obviously is great, but like then the article will get even darker. Yeah. Like, very rarely do they. I mean, I do love it when they have just the headline. Like they had a great headline around like Roy Moore. Um, it was just a picture of Roy Moore, and I don't want to ruin the phrasing, but it was something like. Um, uh, we told you um, homosexuality would lead to pedophilia, said the RNC. Um, but the joke is obviously like it's leading yeah. to it on their side. Yeah. Um, so things like that. It's like, yeah, you don't need any more. But um, then they have some great pieces where it's like they they send like the world so much further than they did in just the headlines. Right. So it's sad to me that people don't read that. Yeah. I guess that's just the way it's going to be, right? I don't... Yeah, they also had that great headline where it's like, we don't make any fucking money if you don't click the link. Oh, right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they've been getting a little darker now with stuff like that, which, you know, I I, I imagine most of your audience doesn't really understand that, like, like, that they're like, you know, that all these websites are dying out, but... Yeah, and they went after Elon Musk when he was going to start. (laughs) I think he is still starting because some Onion people went over there. And I've never worked for The Onion, um... Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I love The Onion, but I actually don't think I could write for The Onion. Mm-hmm. It's just not my voice, um, which is one of the reasons I think I like it so much. Like, I really do laugh out loud, and it's like, how could they have thought of that? <laughs> um, so it's really enjoyable. Whereas, like, when I read, like, Shouts and Murmurs in The New Yorker, like, McSweeney's, I'm, like, more, like, academic mind. I'm like, how did they how did they expand on this? Like, mm. how does this work? I, I'm, like, trying to pick it apart, but The Onion, I just can just enjoy it fully yeah. <laughs> in the moment. <laughs> Uh, often with these prose pieces, I imagine you don't have a deadline. Mm-hmm. So how do you motivate yourself to like work on this piece, on these pieces? Good question. <laughs> I um, in the last couple years, I so I started the Belladonna with um, three other women, and I write with them a lot. So just the idea that there's like four people weighing in on a premise, and immediately you can see like twenty jokes in the doc helps. Um, I'm in a couple writers groups, and seeing I have to like guilt myself seeing other people being like, I'm going to write this piece. And then they write it two days later. I'm like, oh, I should write the piece I pitched. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I make publication goals for myself. So every year, like like in 2016, it was to get on The New Yorker, which I did. Um, and then last this year, it was to get on McSweeney's three times. So I've gotten on twice. Um, so I have like these arbitrary goals, but then I feel bad about myself. I don't meet them. So <laughs> you have to make yourself feel bad, I guess. Yeah, that is kind of an, an essential part of stuff. Yeah, and just, like, it's interesting. I haven't really always understood what the next step in my career is. Like, I kind of feel like I'm taking steps forward in the dark. Um, But when I look back, I can see that, like, the things I'm doing have all, like, built on each other to create more opportunities for myself. So now I feel confident that the stuff I'm doing is working for me, and so I just need to do more of it. Mm. Uh, What would be your advice to people trying to get into, like, online humor writing? You have to read it. Um, Yeah. Like, so the that's, that's the first thing you say. Yeah. Yeah. So the Belladonna doesn't take satirical news. Most websites don't take oh, satirical right, yeah. news because Redactors and the Onion nail it. Um, so when we get a satirical news submission, it irritates me. Um, and very little about submissions irritate me because we want people to feel like, you know, safe to get rejected and that we're like a positive place. But like when it's like we don't accept that. Um, and then I think you have to like read, understand that like it has to be heightened out of reality. So we'll get things that it's like, um, you know, I don't want to accidentally use like a real headline I've gotten, but it will be like um, headlines in Cosmo or something. And Mm -hmm. it's like, but that's a real thing. There are headlines in Cosmo. You need like another word at the front to make it unusual. Right. So, yeah, I think you need to understand that like your comedic premise, which is like the unusual thing, has to be clear from the get go. Otherwise, why are we reading this piece? Right. Yeah. So you mentioned Belladonna, your Mm -hmm. co-founder. How did that start? So... There are some online groups for comedy writers, and um, one of my co-founders, Carrie Whitmer, had posted a few times in there, like, hey, I want to start a website just for um, female and non-binary authors. Anyone interested? And I guess the first few times, no one responded. (laughs) And then um, right before, either right before or right after the 2016 presidential election, I just was like, (laughs) you know, we were all feeling bad. A lot of people were feeling bad. and I just was feeling, like, itchy. I felt like a lot of my career was not in my own hands. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, like, in the hands of editors. And, like, if a lot of people read it or not, I just felt like I didn't have a lot of control, which I know a lot of people feel in comedy. So I was like, I really need to put my stamp on something and create something of my own. Um, so when I saw her post for, like, the third time, I was like, me. 
And then this um, one of my other co-founders, Fiona Taylor, said her. And we were the only two people to respond. So we emailed her. And then I had worked with a woman named Brooke Preston when I lived in Portland. And um, she had taken my online classes for satire. And she was one of the best writers I've ever met. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I was like, I know this woman who lives in Ohio. The three of us live in New York. Um, And I was like, she's great. I think she would be like the perfect person to add. So the four of us just hopped on an email chain. And then I think the election (laughs) happened. Um, and we decided we were going to launch in February of 2017. Mm-hmm. So we started to write a ton of pieces and kind of figure out like what we did and did not want to take and what our mission statement was. So, and then we, we launched. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do you even go about, once you decide to start a website, how do you even go about yeah. like executing that? I think you need to look at like your differentiation point. So again, like onion reductress satirical mm-hmm. news, don't need to do that. Um, even though there were sites like Dorkly doesn't do a ton of humor, them and the Mary Sue do like nerd stuff, like gaming stuff. Like it felt like there wasn't maybe a space for that. Um, but we really didn't see, so Reductors has male writers, um, even though it's, its perspective is like women's media. We didn't see a place that like had, that was just written by women and non-binary authors. So we were like, great, this could be our differentiation point And like, we can help people like grow and go on to other sites. Um, and then the other thing was we wanted to pattern ourselves after Chris Monks, the editor of McSweeney's, because he responds to every single piece. And sometimes he'll give you feedback, but he's always very polite and helpful, and I don't feel he discourages anyone from writing. Um, so our huge mission statement is that for every piece we reject, we give you notes on it. So, oh, wow. Yes, which is very time-consuming, but I do think that like we don't pay yet. We're like working toward that, but we pay and like, your piece wasn't right for us, here's why, here's... We also try to suggest outlets where it might work. So we'll be like, you should try this outlet, and next time you submit to us, here's a piece of advice. Um, and we also have a newsletter for everyone who's ever submitted to us, which at this point is over 500 writers, um, and we send that out every month. So we try to create resources for writers, and it's like we all hopefully rise together. That's really great because I know it's like it's so horrible when you send something in and then it's <laughs> Nothing. just like, thank you, we're not using this, Good- goodbye. Even that, it's like sometimes you don't hear anything. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so that... And now that we've been doing it for a year and a half, it's easier because we have like, we don't use like set responses, but it's just clearer to us through our editorial process where it's like, oh, this isn't heightened enough. So suggest this edit. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's something that is like really important to us is to work with not just comedy writers, but we try to work with like, hey, are you a scientist who works on climate change? Like, can we help you like shape a piece about that Mm -hmm. since you have that knowledge? Um, And we work with a lot of literary people like... um, we get a lot of writers now who aren't comedy writers, which is great. Oh yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. What do they? They're writing comedy there, like when they do it, right? Yes, they send in a comedic thing, but they'll usually send these great emails where it's like, "I've been reading your site for a year." Great. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll see, like, we have a couple um, set formats. So one is called daily itineraries, where you like map out someone's day. Um, so someone, I'm trying to think of a recent one, um, like a writer. Um, did uh, Kelly Kelly Catchpole, who's um, a friend of mine, she did a piece called Daily Itinerary of a Woman Who Knows Exactly How to Moisturize. So it's kind of making fun of like how we're told like we're all under moisturized right, all the time. Right. Um, so it just goes through like her whole day and how much she's constantly moisturizing. And then we have a format called um, Top 10 Sex Dreams, where you just write like really weird sex dreams yeah. about different entities. <laughs> um, like we've done like Dev Patel, um, Dumbledore. Oh, Dumbledore is the young pope. Um, <laughs> someone did the Riverdale cast last week. Yeah. So we're about to do one about Shia LaBeouf. Um, so yeah, now that we have people who are like, oh, I, I love reading top 10 sex dreams. I want to write in that format. So mm-hmm. I think that helps beginning writers to be like, I understand the format. I just have to fill in my own point of view. Mm-hmm. So, What are the things you look for uh, when you get a submission? Really clear title. Yeah. I think sometimes people skip that part or they're like, oh, the editor will do the title. (laughs) And you're like, that's literally the hardest part. (laughs) Um, A clear format. So like I was saying, not just like an amorphous blog blob that's like not even a monologue. Um, Or if it is a monologue, it should be super clear. One of our current interns named Kate Shulman, she wrote one of our most popular pieces ever. Um, I forget the exact wording, but it was something like, hi, it's me, the female love interest in this student film. Here's my story. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, you know, going after all the tropes of, like, younger writers writing women in these films, and they're always, like, pushing the plot forward, or (laughs) they're manic pixie dream girls. Um, So, like, a really clear title that tells me what the piece will look like. And then, um, like, I want to see jokes, like... 
one trick I always tell students in my classes is like put in way more paragraph breaks than you think you need. Because if you have a huge paragraph with like five sentences in it, you can like not have jokes on the ends of like the middle three. Uh, um, but once you have paragraph breaks in there, it's so clear you're missing hard jokes. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I think my students hate it, but then they like it later because yeah. I just go in and I like put gra- graph breaks in all their work and I'm like, now put jokes in these 10 places. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, just the idea in that there's a heightening to it. Like mm-hmm. if it starts out weird, it's like insane by the end. Or if it starts out grounded in normal world by the end, it's gotten absurd. Right. So yeah. So you get submissions from all over the country, all mm-hmm. over the world. All over the world. Our top piece ever was written by a writer in Australia. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. How do you keep like a, a consistent style for the website? Well, we use um, our editorial process. We use Trello. Do you use Trello yeah. for anything? Um, so every... Um, we have a tool called uh, Zapier, we think it's pronounced, that picks up every Word doc and creates a card for it in Trello. And then um, every piece has to have two editors weigh in on it, either two yeses or two noes, or if we're split, all four of us have to read it. Yeah. Um, so we have to, if all four of us are kind of not sure, then we tend to reject it or give rewrite notes. Um, but at this point, we've kind of come in line with, you know, here's why this isn't working. Um, here's what we would want for it to fit the site. Um, we have like a rule we don't make fun of anyone's physical appearance. Um, so even last week we got a piece about Mitch McConnell that like called him a turtle, which fair. <laughs> he kind of <laughs> looks like a turtle, but we can't like that violates our process. Um, we don't talk about people's children either. So um, there's like a couple of like no nos <laughs> in there. Um, but yeah, at this point we want to feel like it's tapping into something that like has a strong point of view and like feels true to us. So. You know, that student love interest piece. I was like, oh my God, I've seen, when I was in grad school, I saw those films. I know what you're talking about. Um, sometimes we'll get things where we're like, is that true? And we'll run it by like our interns or we'll ask someone else. But if no one can relate to it, then right. it doesn't feel like a, essential enough truth that it has to be a piece. Mm-hmm. So uh, the site started in uh, February 2017. Mm-hmm. How has it changed over time since then? I think, well, it's gotten bigger. We have a lot more readers, a lot more writers. Um, It's, like, we get a lot more submissions that are either a complete yes or a complete no. Like, I think people are either, like, understanding the tone a lot more and able to write to it, or they're just, like, missing it. Right. Um, So that makes me feel good that it's not, like, in the middle anymore where things would be, like, kind of off to the side and we weren't sure if they worked. Um, We get um, just, like... Like a lot more people reading the site and having opinions on pieces <laughs> and we're published on medium um we're we may move off at some point but um just because medium has like a built-in community where you can use tags mm-hmm. um so we're, we always use the satire tag but definitely sometimes people think they're serious um so things like i wrote a piece called like essay topics we want for our female empowerment site and then they were like insane topics because my point of view is that like a lot of times people will be like, hey, will you write about your abortion? We'll pay you $10. And right, I find yeah. that very exploitative. <laughs> um, but then people thought that was referencing the Belladonna. So we got like a ton of mad oh, comments. I so I had to add like a fake magazine name to it. I called it Sotana for some reason. <laughs> so now it's like I think we go, we'd rather err on the side of something being too absurd than like someone reading it and thinking it's serious. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> so digital comedy is obviously mm-hmm. not in the best place there ever no. been. <laughs> How do you run a comedy site in 2018? We don't get paid. Yeah. We run it. Um, the four of us just like split the work every week. There's a lead editor um, who kind of handles the posting. We have two interns who um, help us with social. And in return, we like read all their pieces for them and we help them um, try to secure jobs afterwards. Um, yeah, I think at this point we, we've talked about different ways of monetizing, but we've taught some workshops, different colleges. And I think like, kind of traveling with a workshop and, and curating shows will be something we'll do. Mm. And we've um, done shows in New York and at Brown University in Providence. We've gone to Columbus, Ohio. Um, a big part of our mission statement is to work with writers outside of New York and L.A. to like People are funny across the whole country, yeah. in the whole world. Um, so I think we'll do more traveling and um, working with people. But, yeah, for the time being, we're not going to be monetizing. Yeah. Because even running like a Patreon is like another job. Right. Or Patreon, however it's pronounced. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think for the time being, we just kind of want to keep growing the audience and hoping people continue to get, you know, people have had their pieces read and picked up other places. They've gotten job opportunities. So Mm -hmm. we just want to continue to be a platform for 
female and non-binary voices to be elevated. Mm-hmm. And what would you like to do in the future with uh, the Belladonna? I mean, we have a Facebook group for the writers. So, like, I just, like, I love the idea of, like, creating a community. Especially, mm-hmm. like, one of the reasons I love teaching online is, like, people who, ha- like, there's no one near them they can meet up with. They can yeah. do it online. So, we have people exchange work. You know, people do meet up in their cities. When we went to Columbus in June and did a show, I think we had, like, 15 people from the site show up who had either read the site or written for the site, um, which was really cool. Um yeah, I want people to feel like they can be funny from anywhere and that they can, like, grow their comedy skills. And they don't have to necessarily, you know, we have a lot of writers who are parents. Like, they can't just pick up and, like, move to New York yeah. and, like, start doing UCP. Yeah. Um, but, like, I would love for writers to start to get book deals from pieces from the site or, like, at least have those clips available if they get contacted by an agent. Mm-hmm. Um, have people use them as, like, samples if they're submitting TV packets. So I think... We want to be a place where people can like hone their skills and create like really good pieces that get read by you know thousands and thousands of people, and then be able to use that as a springboard to paid work. Mm-hmm. Speaking of book deals, yep, <laughs> you have a book deal. Uh, we get a book deal. <laughs> uh, New Erotica for Feminist. Yes. How did that start? Man, uh, so the four of us talk in G Chat. Um, I don't want to say all day long every day because we all have full time jobs, but. <laughs> You know, we like riff and if there's, um, we take topical pieces on the site. So if a topical comes in, we'll talk about it. Um, and we were just riffing one day and someone, we were talking about how we should try to get a sponsorship and someone's like, oh, like we we're actually talking about LaCroix, although I'm hesitant to bring that up because there was like a story today that like the CEO of LaCroix like was inappropriate with oh, right. <laughs> two pilots. So yeah. we were talking about sparkling water and <laughs> um, we were like, oh, you know, we should try to get a sponsorship. Like, And then someone was like, oh, maybe Tom Hardy could show up wearing a wild feminist shirt and drop it off at our house. And someone was like, oh, my God, that's like modern erotica. <laughs> um, so we just started like riffing on that theme. And then I think I was like, you know, this is like a solid comedic premise. Like we should put it into a doc and like flesh out a bunch of them. Um, so we did. And we wrote it super quickly, which, again, to, like, people, people who want to write in this form, like, if you can write a lot really fast, that's a sign that your premise is really good. Um, especially if, like, other people can pitch jokes on it, too, because mm-hmm. it means it's super clear. Um, so we all wrote jokes, and one woman, like, was really good at cleaning up all the styles so that they all read similarly, although we all wrote different jokes. Um, and then we sent it to New Yorker, where it was rejected. <laughs> um, although she did say she liked it, but um, at that time we had also called it like porn for liberal women or something, okay. which I don't think is a very good title in mm-hmm. retrospect. Um, and then we sent it to McSweeney's, and we changed the title called, title to New Erotica for Feminists, and he published it, and it was great. And um, I don't think any of us had ever had something go like super viral, so it started to go viral, and we were like, "What's happening?" <laughs> Um, yeah, and, like, in the first, like, two weeks, it was shared, like, a 100,000 times on Facebook, and wow. I think now it's been read over a million times, and we got an email, which is the best email I'll probably ever get in my life, <laughs> um, from an editor in the UK, and she was like, have you ever considered turning this into a book? I would like to buy it, wow. which is not how that goes normally, yeah. um, and we were like, this was a Friday, um, and so over the course of that weekend, we like asked people if they had any lit agents to help us negotiate a deal. <laughs> we talked to three agents. We signed with one who we love. Um, and then we negotiated the UK deal. So, And they were like, this was in February, early March. And she was like, it's coming out in November. Wow. <laughs> which is super fast. And then um, we wrote a book proposal, and we sent that out to U.S. agents um, like two weeks later, which was <laughs> also super fast. <laughs> That's where I'm so glad there's four of us. Like, I literally could not have done this alone. Right. And uh, we got a U.S. publisher, Plume, um, which is a Penguin Random House publisher, and they're great. And then we wrote the whole manuscript from May, and we turned it in June 7th, and then we did the edits in two weeks, <laughs> and now it's at the copy editor. Um, so it's all finished? It is done. Wow. Yes. Well, congratulations. Thank you. We finished it on Tuesday, actually, so oh. two days ago. <laughs> wow. And we just got our cover, and we're happy with it, so... Um, yeah, it's coming out in uh, November 13th, the week after the midterm elections. Wow. And it's a gift book, so it's like a hundred and um, it's like either 178 or 208 pages, cons- like depending on like how big it will be. But it's right. like meant for people to give as gifts mm-hmm. to each other. So, was was writing a humor book on your radar at all? No, and honestly, this is what I mean by like taking steps in the dark. Yeah, like I always knew I wanted to publish a book, but I guess I was like, oh, at some point, I better write a novel, like get my act together. <laughs> Um, but I didn't know that there's actually a huge market for these shorter gift humor books. Mm-hmm. So 
now I know, and this is like my dream life. So <laughs> um, to write, you know, just a ton of jokes and ideally sell, try to sell a lot of copies right. and have them go hopefully into places like anthropology. And mm-hmm. um, so I would love to do another one of these books, honestly. Yeah. So it's great. I, I assume you'd never written a book proposal before. I had not. So how did you guys approach that? We um, we have a friend, Sarah Cooper, who runs the Cooper Review, which is a satirical like business site. Um, and she, like, you need people who just will, like, help you out. Like, <laughs> she sent out, like, we saw her book proposal, and she, we actually are with her agent. She referred us to her agent and just, like, helped us out so much because, yeah, you're like, what's in it? Mm-hmm. Um, and our agent sent us a few examples, but... Yeah, like it's like you have to come up with like comp titles, like books that sold well that your book is like to like reassure publishers as an oh, audience. Yeah. You have to, we had to write additional new material. So, in addition to reprinting the original piece, we had to print, um, like write new stuff super fast in like a week. And then we wrote like, um, all these like tonal things. So, we at one point were like, this is if Gloria Steinem wrote for 30 Rock. Um, okay. And so, like, things like that, mm-hmm. um, where people were like, oh, I get it. Like, yeah, yeah. you basically have to explain the tone of the book over and over and over <laughs> using, like, different formats. Um, and then we published, because the piece had, like, been read so widely, we, like, published, like, what, like people who had retweeted it, because, like, people with, like, millions of followers had put it out there. So we were like, look, all these people liked it. Yeah. Um, and we had to get blurbs from people. <laughs> so... It was time consuming, and this was also the week we were all going to Brown to do a show at a workshop. So it's like, but then there was a freak snowstorm, and Brooke couldn't come, so she finished the proposal. In Ohio. <laughs> so it all worked out. Not, it sucked for Brooke, but we're thankful she did the proposal. <laughs> well, what, how do you adapt like a McSweeney's piece into mm-hmm. like a bigger book? Yeah, and that was kind of what we were wondering at first. Um, so the original piece is like things like. You know, he calls me into his office and shuts the door to promote me. He promotes me again and again. I'm in ecstasy. So that was kind of like our North Star joke. That was the one that we're Mm -hmm. like, that makes perfect sense. Everyone knows what we're talking about. This is also like right after the Matt Lauer thing where he's just like locking people in his office. Um, So we were like, okay, so those are like everyday occurrences. So we built out like different chapters. So we have one that's like new erotica uh, for feminists who are parents and so they're parenting related. We did historical ones. Um, so I w- wrote one about like Marie Curie, um, Helen of Troy, literary ones. We did um, the yellow wallpaper. Which oh, I, yeah. 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 Oh, good. You know you're feminist. Yeah. Well, I know <laughs> that. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great short story. <laughs> yeah. We did um, yellow wallpaper and then like we did a Lolita one. Yeah. Um, we talked about like Eleanor Roosevelt. Like I would say the literary and historical ones I actually liked writing the most because we did Adam and Eve, but like Eve when the snake is like eat the apple she's like are you insane <laughs> um pop culture um we wrote one about paul having sex with the ghost of paul newman in the newman's own salad dressing factory <laughs> that ended up getting cut because they don't have newman's own in the uk <laughs> but that's one that we'll try to place elsewhere yeah. but it was really fun it was so yeah. fun to like take the initial idea and be like how can we expand this and i think we just went into like other areas of life um one was sex and dating so we just wrote more on that vein um yeah, I really, and that was something Brooke did while we were doing the show. She like created a table of contents, and we were like, "Oh, God bless you." <laughs> <laughs> How would you balance the workload of the site with the book and our full time jobs? And your full time jobs, yeah. <laughs> it was rough. I will say, uh, I didn't take a weekend off until the end, until probably two weeks ago. So mm-hmm. I worked from March until the middle of June straight with no weekends off. No. That was stressful. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, my husband was super supportive. Like he took over. We have a very active husky mix he like (laughs) took over a lot of the dog stuff like he was very understanding um we just would have to kind of pass the ball back and forth um so the week our final ads were due carrie's parents were in town and she's like i can't get to the computer um so we like gave her her edits first so she could do them early um one week brooke was buying and selling her house so (laughs) we had to like kind of you know give her some edits that were a little easier to execute um I had insomnia at one point, like other people had to help me. So we kind of, we're really good, I think, at this point of just being like, look, this week I'm overwhelmed. I can't do it. I need someone else to do it, um, which feels good other than like all trying to tough tough it out. Right. But I did my mostly on the weekends, and um, I would say <laughs> when I was walking the dog, I would like I, – I think like you can work on stuff when you're not at your computer. So I would like read one and be like, oh, how do I fix that? And then take my dog for a walk, and I wouldn't listen to music or anything. I would just think about it the whole time. And then by the end, I would, like, voice dictate it while my dog is, like, pooping. <laughs> and then go home and type it. 
Yeah, people. I wish I had a dog for that. For that reason alone. I mean, a lot of other I reasons too. I get so much done in our walks. It's I can crazy. imagine. Yeah. I thanked him in the acknowledgments of the book because I was like, <laughs> "You're my bro. Like, you help me out." <laughs> what uh, What surprised you about writing a book? I mean, we're on this really intense timeline, right, yeah. so that <laughs> surprised me. Um, I haven't been like seriously line edited in a long, long time because mm. I've written for myself and I started my own site. And even my pieces on the New Yorker McSweeney's, I mean, they don't have time to do huge line edits. Either it's rejected or accepted. So like the intensity of the line edits. Mm. And I think it was good ultimately, especially because they're not comedians, the editors, and we have three editors. Um, so it's like, oh, you're right. Like that's a super inside baseball joke. Mm. Um, like I kept putting a postscript on the end of the Helen of Troy one about like Homer because Helen didn't go with Paris to Troy mm-hmm, right. or uh, to not to, yes to, she um, didn't Homer couldn't write the Iliad so he wrote like a badly reviewed memoir and they were like that is such like a deep cut joke you have to cut that <laughs> and I kept putting it back in and then I was like you know what these are people like they know what they're doing I have to accept that edit mm-hmm. um, so it was good it was humbling but also it shows me like when you're writing for a much wider audience so you can't always have like every joke be incredibly specific um, sometimes you need to broaden the joke out so mm-hmm. I found that very instructive yeah. what would you like to be doing next? I'd like to write more books Yeah, I really like this process and I can work alone which is, is my love um, I want to keep growing the site I um, you know I would love to maybe like move into writing some pilots like based off stuff from the site um the cool thing about the site is you can see what people really respond to so like i said like if a writer has a piece kind of go viral like kind of help them create it in another form um i would love to be paid to run the site to either like you know have another site acquire us or like get a sparkling water sponsorship (laughs) (laughs) um but i do feel like i've kind of like after like walking in the dark for a while and like always wondering if I should be a performer, but I just really didn't want to be one. I do feel like I've kind of found the writing that like I make my whole living from writing and editing comedy. So, Mm -hmm. and teaching comedy. So I do feel like in the last like four years, I've found my way of writing that like makes it my life. Yeah. Which is good. (laughs) I didn't know if that would ever come. (laughs) Uh, Great. So we're going to wrap up. Uh, with you giving your thoughts on some clickhole headlines I have. Okay, I'm okay. I don't read clickhole all the time, okay. but I'll, <laughs> well, I'll give my thoughts. <laughs> I don't either, and maybe that you can you can tell that from this. Um, I would say fifty percent of clickhole I think is hilarious, and the other fifty percent I'm like I don't get it. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm right. not a true absurdist. I will say that. <laughs> okay, say what you want about Piers Morgan, but do it quick because he's currently distracted watching the cat. This cat eat a potato chip. Kind of a long one. I like that. So you're, I can like see it in my head, which I like. Yeah. So Pierce Morgan is watching a cat eat a potato chip and you're insulting him behind his back. Yeah. Well, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, so I like the clickle headlines where they take like a phrase, like say what you want about. Yeah. And so I was trying to do that. Yeah. You like subverted it. I like yeah. that. I think that works. Okay. Yeah. And I can see it. Like I said, I like to be able to visualize it in my head. Okay. Um, so you know how the clickle is like the, like the little phrase, like the one word thing and then the headline. So yeah. this is like, okay, so. A political diversion? Donald Trump just said farts smell good. <laughs> okay. I mean, it made me laugh. Yeah. Yeah, it's so I think you did a good job. Like, it has to be... Obviously, he says such insane things all the time that... Yeah. But he hasn't said... Although, didn't he release a plan last week that was called fart? Oh, I think he did, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. So that's not even heightened enough anymore. That's crazy. He literally released a plan called fart that was yeah. good. Wow. Damn. So, no, that doesn't work. Wow. Wow. What a time to be alive. Oh, my <laughs> <Yeah>. God. <laughs> um, okay. Third one. Last one. Heartwarming. This man loves basketball so much, he let the New York Knicks dribble his body. At first I thought you said heartwarming, like what dogs get. I was like, oh, heartworms. <laughs> oh, no, no. Heartwarming. I feel like that could be made even bigger. Yeah. Like, dribble his body. Um, like, what else could they dribble that's even bigger than that? Yeah. That dribble his have. kidneys. Okay, I got um, like, I don't know. I'm always big for like grosser, weirder things. Kidneys is funny to think about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because they're like you. They like a. Sh- it almost shape. works. Yeah, yeah. You could like dribble a kidney. Yeah, yeah. I like that dribble kidneys. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't have to be that, but that's like one of my things when I teach is I I like hate it when I get notes that are like just make this funnier. Like right. I try to give an example of what it could be, mm-hmm. even if that's not exactly it. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be kidneys, but that's an example of like what I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um. All right. Anything you want to plug? 
Yeah, go to www.thebelladonnacomedy.com. We post every single day. Um, so we have fresh content every day by women and non-binary writers. And then New Erotica for Feminists is out in bookstores and online November 13th in the U.S., the U.K., Australia, and Canada. So yeah. go get it. Buy it for... Honestly, we want to see like guys buying it to show that they're like with it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, the woke men. Yes, we want to be like, look, if you don't buy this book, you're not a feminist. So <laughs> that's our marketing strategy. We're going to work on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, read... If you want to write in this form, you need to be reading in this form. So mm-hmm. read McSweeney's in New Yorker, The Onion Reductress, Clickhole, like just like immerse yourself in the thing you want to do. Mm-hmm. So, all right, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow on Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit boardwalkaudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.